The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Hi, welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. She's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional, author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. And Mari's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you probably saw her on TV a few times, Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Araldo, and so many other shows. So to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Evening, Mari. Good evening. I am so excited about our guest tonight. I have been a teacher for many years, and I really enjoyed teaching at Western State Law School. And about 16 years ago, I had a woman in my class who stood up like all the other students in my class to tell about why they were in law school, what they wanted to get out of it. And this wonderful young woman, beautiful, got up, brilliant lady got up and told us that the reason she was in my class and in law school is because the judicial system needed to make a change and she was going to be part of that change and make that change and I'll never forget that and she's with us tonight and it's wonderful because as I've had students throughout the years I've kept in touch with them she's been an attorney now for many years and I get to see her at family law reviews and we stay in touch and she's just delightful Besides that, she's an author. She's an attorney. She's a former prosecutor. She is an author. She's an expert on celebrity privacy and celebrity divorce. And she happens to be the daughter of the great icon, John Wayne. She wrote her book, John Wayne, My Father, which I just read recently. She wrote it several years ago. It was kind of brought back to light because her dad's 100th birthday anniversary would have been just this past year. So I remembered reading about it, and I called her, and I said, get me that book. I want you on my show. And she was so gracious to be able to say yes. So let me give you some background on Ms. Ayesa Wayne. She has experienced firsthand the issues of privacy and the lack thereof as daughter of the late, great John Wayne. She also has keen insight into the issues of privacy and divorce and domestic violence, not only as a family law attorney, but also from her prior own experience, which she's going to talk about. In her book, John Wayne, My Father, her practice and her professional speaking and writing, she has been willing to share the challenges of the lack of privacy for her and other celebrities. Prior to her private family law practice, Ayesa Wayne was a criminal prosecutor for the city of Los Angeles. As a prosecutor, she handled over 500 criminal cases and was the lead prosecutor in over 50 criminal and domestic violence jury trials in her capacity 
as a deputy city attorney for the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office. Her substantial litigation experience and background places her in the top ranks of the family law field. Also, Ms. Wayne has testified before the House of Representatives for the Los Angeles City Office on domestic violence and on bills dealing with domestic violence and other family law issues. She's also been a guest speaker and legal analyst on live television shows, including CNN Larry King Live and Fox News. And she has also spoken for many professional organizations. A very exciting thing that she does that's actually coming up very soon here is she is serving on the auxiliary board of the John Wayne Cancer Institute in Santa Monica, California. And next Saturday, there is actually a foundation fundraiser that she's going to be at. And I'm so privileged I'm going to go and so is Lloyd. So we're very excited. We think people should donate to this cause. It's a wonderful cause. And she's just terrific. She's written besides her book, but she's also written articles such as Celebrity divorce which was in orange county lawyer magazine you can find out more about her and her practice at waynelawgroup.com ayesa you there i'm here ayesa thank you so much we are just so thrilled that you're joining us today well mari what a wonderful introduction well you deserve it babe you're great (laughs) (laughs) you know i really loved your book about your dad i cried i laughed i giggled You know, you re- you talked a lot and revealed a lot about him, but you really revealed a lot about yourself and, and what it's like to be a child of a well-known celebrity. Tell us a little bit about your ch- early childhood and, and your parents' concern for your safety and privacy. Well, I remember some of my earliest memories were being in our home, which we had a, a big home that was gated, and my earliest memories were my mother saying, you have to be careful of this person, you have to be careful of that person. And she was constantly with me and really creating, you know, a fear in me of kidnapping. And I think, I don't know what was going on in those days, but somebody famous's daughter was kidnapped and it was just horrific. And and so my parents were constantly worried that I, you know, that I would be kidnapped and that somebody would get into the house and all that. So we were pretty cautious about that. But as a young girl, I'm talking about two and three years old, it was very scary to think that somebody would want to do that. It, It was just when I was beginning to realize that my dad was known by other people and that he was, you know, somebody that people recognized and knew. And so this revelation at a young age, you know, did make me worry about other people trying to get something or trying to take me away. Yeah, it must have been it must have been frightening. You know, people always seem to think that celebrities' lives are so glamorous and wonderful. But, you know, you divulged in your book that you actually lived a lonely kind of life, even though you were in sprawling homes in Encino and in Newport Beach. Either you had some real isolation and loneliness because they wouldn't let you do a lot of things. Is that right? Uh, yes, really. I was not allowed to go to anybody's house after school to play. And I couldn't go just play in the streets like everybody else was doing uh, because of this horrible fear. So I was restricted to m- my home. And my friends would have to come over and play at my house. You know, the very few times that I did go to somebody's home, it was usually with my parents. And it was their friends, and their friends had kids. 
And that was always really such a treat for me. Yeah, because so, you, your friends were, a lot of your friends were other uh, other celebrity children, right? So you well, all... Like, well, I can remember Andy McLaglin. He was a famous director. He is a famous director. And his daughter, Mary McLaglin, we would play all the time. Things like that. Yeah, then you didn't have to worry as much when you were with them because you were <laughs> you were both being protected, right? Right, right. Now, what's it like? He says, you know, some of the kids, for example, parents as in in the celebrity life, they they make that choice. But as a child born into it, you're just kind of you fall into it. It, it isn't a choice that you make. It you have to learn to deal with that. What about privacy? Did you ever feel people would take pictures of you, kind of like the paparazzi type stuff? I know you were in a magazine when you were a little baby. What kind of stuff like that happened? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. I remember, well, when we were, my first 10 years, they any kind of uh, photo things would be very planned, and, and they would come to our home and do it. And then later on, uh, after that, my dad was so famous, I, I'll never forget when, we took our boat to Europe, and uh, we went to one of these um, ports, and I, I knew that my dad was famous. I was probably about, at this time, I was probably about nine or something. I knew my dad was famous, and, and in the United States, people would come up to him and ask him for his autograph. But when we were in Europe, we landed in our first port, and we got off. My dad and I got off the boat and walked a few blocks, and then all of a sudden, there was a mob. Oh, a God. A complete mob scene. And he was really tall, luckily. And I was almost, I was pushed aside, and I couldn't find my dad. Oh, scary. <laughs> I could look up and see that he was the tallest person. So that's kind of how I kept track of him. And then one of the uh, storekeepers, the way they had the storefronts, took my dad in and was able to lock the door, and he found me and, and grabbed me and pulled me in. So it was really amazing. And um, and frightening. <laughs> well, it was frightening, but on the other hand, it was frightening in one respect. I could see him. Yes. <laughs> but on the other hand, it was kind of, I was proud of him. I could always tell when he, he really loved the adoration. So it was, it was double-edged sword in that respect. Yeah, so you that actually were me, part of that. There was a funny story out of that. When my dad realized how famous he was in Europe, he everybody wanted his autograph. So that day he spent signing autographs. Well, he had a, a little card, a white card printed up with his signature on it, John Wayne, and had him delivered in Europe. And from then on, if anything like that happened, he'd just throw the cards out into the crowd. <laughs> Better than candy. <laughs> That's cute. So... He, and then from that point on, he always carried those cards around. <laughs> but it must have been pretty overwhelming. I mean, you can remember when you're nine. I mean, how much do we remember when we're nine? I mean, it was pretty emotional for you to see that all happening. Because here you are just getting off at a port. You think, oh, this is great. It's not the United States. We're going to just go daddy and I. And then all of a sudden, there's this big mob. I can imagine that must have been pretty uh, pretty overwhelming. But do Yeah, you... it, was, it was just it was Bizarre. one of the top concerns and things that was thought about, talked about, and dealt with in, in my childhood. How do you think that lack of privacy and that kind of exposure to everybody affected you emotionally? I, I, I think that when I was with my friends at school and doing things with other kids, I was very happy. Uh, I remember, I remember, well, 
And then on the other hand, it, it also created an insecurity because a lot of times I didn't know, well, does this person like me and want to come over to my house because Oh, they, they want to like see me? Daddy, yeah. Or, or yeah. do they want to see my dad? Right. And so <laughs> it, it did create that type of insecurity where you would really never know. On the other hand, if you were just a normal kid and somebody wanted to play with you at your house, you would have to conclude that they liked your friendship. Right, right. So there was always this second thought in right. the back of my mind. Right. And and I guess the fact that your mom being from Peru and being worried that you were going to be kidnapped, that kind of thing, um, you know, maybe you had that inner suspiciousness because of being a little tiny baby, being afraid that you were going to be, you know, kidnapped at that point, too. So, well, how, I, go ahead. I never thought I was going to be kidnapped. Oh, I no. thought it was crazy. It's when the, your parents are saying, don't eat this or don't eat that. You know, oh. I, I was, I dismissed it. I see. You know, but, but it could have been a real threat. And you can see that now as an adult, but at the time you probably thought, what are you saying? Yeah. I didn't I, want to believe that. Right. No, I mean, you know? it's so far from a little girl's own thoughts. You know, I read in your book about how you said, you know, whenever your dad was in town, the family ate together, you'd get all excited, go run and see big, your big, strong daddy. And you said that most of the time you screened your dad's movies at home, but a few times you actually went with friends. How did you feel when you saw your dad up on the screen? That must have been really strange since you were so used to seeing it in the house, in this home screening. Yeah, seeing him on the big screen was, was pretty amazing. Basically, if I saw a movie, I would have already been on the set. I would have played in the in the background, <laughs> in the, in the, you know, the storefronts or the teepees, right. and I would know the set and all that. And so, you know, that was another thing that I, I, would, I would be familiar with the background. But to see it being my dad... Uh, really, it's just, it's not explainable. Yeah, especially because uh, if you saw it for playing and then all of a sudden you see it as a real movie, it probably looked right. very different. It was like my dad's movies weren't real movies, but everybody else's movies were because his were my dad's. Right, right. <laughs> so I even get that feeling when I'm, I'm driving on the 405 and I see John Wayne Airport. Yes. <laughs> it just hits me in the gut. I it's bizarre. I bet it does. I bet it does. It's it's like, that's my daddy. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned in your book that when you were born, you were in the cover of a magazine, and, you know, it was kind of weird for you. You found yourself the object of interest yourself, even though he was he was the icon, but you were, you know, you were the object of interest, too. Um, what was you? How did that feel? How did that feel to you personally? Well, I, I personally really hated it. I, I resented it. Um, I wanted to be playing with my friends. Uh, but, you know, instead we'd have to be posing and smiling and taking the best picture and putting forward, putting forward, putting our best foot forward, even when you're tired or you're hungry or you're thirsty. And I, and I really did resent having to do that 
I know you all said, the time. Yeah, I I remember you you when I was reading your book, you talked about the baby elephant that was on the movie set, and then your dad right. brought it home for your for your birthday, and I saw a picture in the book of you on this little baby elephant, and you you're smiling, but inside you really hated being on that, that elephant. <laughs> I was scared to death of the elephant, but my dad, of course, thought I loved the elephant, and so here in front of all his friends and my friends. He surprised me with the elephant. <laughs> so you were, so you were forced to act like this child that loves this elephant, right? Because you're sitting there on lot, this elephant, smiling. Yeah, I I noticed throughout the book you were saying, you know, your dad must have been just a, like a he was so big and and strong and kind of an imposing figure that a lot of times you just would acquiesce to whatever he said, even though you thought something different. Is that right? All the time, he was just like he was. The thing about my dad, though, was that he was so fair and so good. And when I could get his attention on something, we it took me years, probably into my teens, but finally I could talk to him. But in the beginning of my life, what he said went. Yeah, yeah. That was it. And I thought it was funny that, you know, you talked about in the beginning of your book that your dad had originally wanted to be a lawyer. And then he became an actor, and you became the lawyer. So do you think that had anything to do with it, you wanting to be? I know you went through a lot, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, but was that also part of it to kind of fulfill his dream? No. The funny, ironic thing was when I was in law school, I read uh, a biography about my dad. In fact, I think it was when I was doing my book, and that's when I first understood or knew that he really had aspirations of being an attorney. Is that funny? I, and I was in law school, which was really funny, and my dad had already died, and so I looked up and said, well, Dad, yep. you know, I wanted to be the actress when I was a little girl yeah. and became the lawyer. <laughs> and he wanted to be the lawyer and became the actor. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I, so, I wanted to ask you about that because I... I I know I read in your book that you were you you were in some of the movies. Why don't you tell us uh, tell us some of the movies that you were in? At uh, the first movie, basically, my dad wanted his family with him, and we really all wanted to be together. So I went on every set of every movie that he made. You know, mm-hmm. during my first eighteen years, and the first movie, I was two. I turned three on the set of the Alamo, <laughs> and I. I, I it was a war movie, and I was so young that I was told to hide under a tarp, and then these people with fake guns are going to point them at you, and don't be scared, it's just a movie. <laughs> and so I'm under the tarp, and then these people pulled up the tarp with the fake guns, and I screamed bloody murder. <laughs> I was so young, I couldn't process the fact that this was a movie and the guns weren't fake. Right, right. So that was my first film debut, but I do remember getting to ride a pony, and uh, the I was one of three people that survived the, the Alamo, the war, and they let us ride out into the sunset. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was fun, and then the next movie I was just playing on the set, and I heard my dad say, Isa, you want to be in a movie? So they got me costumed up and, and gave me my lines, and then I sang Farajaka. That was the Comancheros. Uh, so, yeah. 
basically it was very, very loose and ad, ad lib. He'd just stick me in parts here and there. You were just so cute. He just put you in there wherever he wanted. <laughs> I think when he could or when he was really good friends with the director. Yeah. They would give me a chance to, you know, be in the movie a little bit. So how did your dad feel about you and your siblings wanting to be movie actors? Well, I loved being in the movies when I was a child. And all of a sudden, he stopped putting me in his movies. And I never had the guts to say, well, Dad, can you put me in your next movie? Because it was just really not up to him and imposing of myself. And But until I was a teenager, and then my dad told me a story about my half-sister, Tony, that she had been in school plays and taken drama. And now that I think about it, he was probably telling it to me from, for my benefit. But he was telling me how good, of, you know, what a great actress she was and that he made a conscious choice to not help her with that career because she was better off not being in the film business. Hmm. So from that point on, I realized that he didn't think it was a very, he didn't like the business per se because it's, you know, it, it's very competitive and you have to be pretty strong and get rejected and handle rejection and, and the whole privacy issues. Yeah. And I, I just think that he didn't, re- I know by him telling me that, that he was trying to tell me, you really don't want this type of a life. Yeah. It's not glamorous. When you, He would try to take us to dinner, and, and people would come to the table and, of course, interrupt, and he loved it and hated it. Yeah. That double-edged sword again that you talked about, he, he loved the adoration, and he loved that because that was his craft. But on the other hand, what about my family time? Right. Yeah. I know you and I were talking uh, recently about how, because I said, you know, your dad's boat is near our boat and, you know, it'd be fun to have you come on. Yeah. The, yeah. And you were saying how he loved being on the boat because he, when you're out on the boat in the ocean, you know, it doesn't matter what your hair looks like. It doesn't matter what your face looks like. You, you're just out there with the, with the dolphins and the ocean. And that was a real good time for him and a good time for you guys. Yeah, he would. You know, he had a bald spot, and he could go on the boat and take his cap off <laughs> and just walk around in his shorts and his flip-flops and, and just, you know, be who he was. He wouldn't have to worry about people, photographers coming up and the, the things we see nowadays with, with um, the girls. Oh, um, yeah. Paris Hilton and... Brittany and all that stuff. That's got to be really bad. Somehow my father really protected us from extreme, you know, those type of extreme situations. Right. I think he was a strong guy and people respected him. And so I don't think they would have done that to you guys maybe as they would to others because he he was protective of you. The reason, you know, when I was 10 years old, my parents decided to move from from Los Angeles to Orange County, which was a very small town in those days, I think in 1966. Right. And I, I'm sure that part of the reason was because there, he used to love to go to Savon Drugstore. And he'd say, I, I go to Savon and nobody bothers me <laughs> and it's great and everybody knows me there. And, <laughs> and so... 
he moved to Orange County, I think, to, to try to live a more normal life. Right. And he would have more privacy. I mean, they may know him, but they didn't harangue him and harass him like they would in L.A. area. So how about for you? Was there a greater deal of privacy and freedom when you went to Newport High School and all that? Well, for me, it was a very, very traumatic move because it's just, it's something being the child of a celebrity. People think you're different. And when you're a kid and when you're a teenager, you don't want to be different. You want to be like everybody else. Right. So we moved, I was 10, turning 11, and just pre-teens, and I knew when I was walking down the hallway in my school that people were saying, there's John Wayne's daughter, (laughs) whispering (laughs) and pointing at me, and I felt like a freak. Yep, yep. So... That was terrible for me. Yes. Um, you know, I have you know, to laugh. I guess, uh, speaking from an adolescent, you know. Yeah. What I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I have to laugh at that because I don't. I don't have the same thing. But I'll, I'll give you an example how I can really relate to that. When I was a little girl growing up in Chicago, my father was a furrier. He made fur coats. So. I had a million fur coats as a little girl in the cold. It would be 40 below zero, and you were glad, but I hated it. All I wanted to have was a cloth coat to be like my best friends, you know, and I didn't. And they all thought it was cool, and I hated it. I only wanted to have a cloth coat, and they wouldn't give me a cloth coat because my dad was a furrier. Why should I have a cloth coat? Right. That's exactly it. So I get it because you just want to be like everybody else, and and you you can't help it what your parents are. So right. it's, there was no way to get out of it. I used to, in fact, I used to lie. I used to say, my, my last name is Wayne, but I don't know who John Wayne is. <laughs> I'm not related to him, and that's how extreme it got. Uh, I think that was in middle school. When I first moved to Orange County, I would just try to avoid it and say, no, 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 that's not my father. Right. So, right. Yeah, you're right. You just you want to do what your peers do and, and all that. So. Yeah. yeah. That's what they say. Oh, you know, they think, oh, these celebrity children, they're all brats, they're all this. And I just want to tell my audience, we're talking to Ayesa Wayne. She is not a brat. She is a sweetheart. I've, I've known her for 16 years. She's great. She's a wonderful attorney, a former prosecutor, um, a, a heart of gold. And we're talking about what it was like uh, to grow up as John Wayne's daughter. And she wrote the book, John Wayne, My Father, which if you haven't read it, it is. You can get it on Amazon. And it's a great book to read. It's very heartwarming. So getting back to this, Ayesa. Um, um, you, let's see here, I had some other questions. Um, oh yeah, you talked a lot about in your book, cause I guess it was, it was very traumatic for you when your dad got cancer, cause you saw your dad as such a strong man. So he, he was a heavy smoker, right? Right. And, um, when he first got sick, h- how did it feel, you know, dealing with the press and all the lack of privacy at that time, the first time he got sick? Well, the first time he got sick, I was really, I was about six or seven. I don't remember, I don't remember that much. He got, he did get lung cancer. And once again, I'm sure I, I was very sheltered from it. I don't really remember it. Right. And that was a successful surgery. But he got sick later on. And um, 
about 15 years later, he, he got stomach cancer. And, and the first thing that my, my dad was worried about was he didn't want anybody to know about it because nobody was going to want him for a movie. Aww, if, yeah. You know, if they think you're sick, they're not going to hire you. Right, right. And doing movies is not, you know, you're never guaranteed your next picture. He was always worried about that. When am I going to do my next film? So if, if it's not just, it wasn't just somebody's going to know I'm sick. It, it, it was, I'm not going to get hired again. So it was really important for him to try to keep it as secret as possible so that he could deal with his sickness and, and then get back to work. Um, but I specifically, I think I wrote in my book, one, one of the horrible times where he had a complication after cancer surgery and, and we had to take him to the hospital. Oh yeah, I uh, read that. He he went to Hogue and then they said you had to go up to the uh, to UCLA. Yes, Is that the they, one? They, they oh. sent us, we, he went to the emergency room and then they sent us up to UCLA and by the time we got to UCLA, the whole hospital entrance, every entrance had reporters and cameras. And so we uh, communicated with the staff, and they told us to drive in where, you know, the, the dewy dumpsters come out. Oh, gosh. And we had to load him into a dumpster and get him in the oh, hospital that way. God. Because he didn't want pictures of him going into the hospital sick. Oh, no. Of course not. So that was really humiliating. And for me to see that with with my dad, it was just awful. Talk Um, about lack of privacy. I mean, medical privacy is like the most important thing that we have, really. And that he had, they didn't even allow him his privacy for for his health care. That was horrible. Right. And he he called, it was on the 11 o'clock news that night. Jerry Duffy was a friend of his. Ugh. Well, when he called, uh, he he talked to Jerry Dunphy, and he said, well, you son of a bitch, <laughs> you aired that thing. And you know, then he said, well, I want I want you to be straight with me. How'd you find out? And they, they confessed that it was a nurse at Hogue Hospital. You know, that is such a privacy invasion, you know, Isn't that, it? yeah, it really is. I hope that she was fired for something like that. She they didn't name the person, but they just told us how they how they received the information. Right. Now and we now we have HIPAA, which is, you know, the health information uh, portability app, but you know, you're not supposed right. to give reveal any of that kind of information and if you do, that you know, she she really should have been fired for doing something like that. That was a really hard time from that's when he went in the hospital and he really never left the hospital, did he? Until right. he died. Yeah, that's when he really, he was, he was in the hospital for months after that, and he, and he never left. You know, I was reading about that when you were, when you were talking about the, the hard time when he was in the hospital and he was dying, and you had been quite close with him at that time because you were older. I, I wanted to bring up a couple issues, if you don't mind talking about it. We recently had on a doctor who talked about death with dignity and privacy and making your own choices. And I remember seeing in in your book that um, you had some very strong feelings about when your dad was dying and something about that uh, his oldest son from the previous marriage was um, really kind of taking over. And you didn't have much say in that, did you? 
No, Mm-mm, I didn't. And and that's, I mean that's the problem when you have really two sets of children from you had two sets of kids from two different wives, and and so they were older than we were, and so they just handled it. Right. And I thought, you know, you were talking about his, um, you know, his religion, that he was a damn Presbyterian. But um, but Michael, his his oldest son, had brought in a priest. How do you think your dad thought about that? What do you think he was thinking when he brought in the priest for the last rites and conversion and all that? Well, I was a little upset because my dad was going in and out of consciousness, and he tried so hard to overcome this illness. He would walk down the halls after surgery and he'd try and try. And I was upset because I thought he's not used to seeing priests and that's not how he prayed. Right. And he prayed by his bedside. You know, I I knew his style of worship and, and all of a sudden to see a priest, I would be frightened Right. And to have somebody that's so incapacitated, maybe he thought maybe that I'm being converted by, you know, a priest who I'm not familiar with and that this isn't what, how I want to go. I just don't, I really believe that that, a, a person should be able to have their wishes. Yes. Granted, uh, that was terrible, I thought. Yeah. To bring in a priest and and plus give you the awareness that you're dying. Yes. And and his own choice of religion for his whole life was different even though I know you kids were brought up Catholic. It still it wasn't his choice. Right. And it, it wasn't his choice. And it took away his own privacy, you know, the right to to have a religion as he wishes when he goes on. And you also spoke about how your dad loved the ocean, and he always said he wanted to be cremated with his ashes strewn between Catalina and Newport because that gave him such joy. And that he didn't get that wish either, did he? He didn't get that either. He loved. I, he talked about that a lot. He said, "This is the place where I want to rest." And every time we go on the boat, you know, he'd smell the air and the water, and it was just something that he just he looked forward to. You know, if there's going to be a day when I'm gone, I want my ashes here. Yeah. And, and so, and he, and he said, I want on my tombstone, you know, I don't want to be in, in a grave. He did right. not want to be in a grave. And, and, and I want the words, feo, fuerte, y formal, which is a Spanish saying. So John Wayne. And it means really ugly, strong, uh, but with dignity, formal, you know, formal character. Right. And so, but my, my older brother was very Catholic and wouldn't think of having him cremated and wouldn't think of spreading his ashes and didn't give him the saying. And I just, I don't, I don't agree with that. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that, you know, and I have a strong belief that he knows what you wanted for him. He knows. And, um, you know, of course, at this point, when you're when you're on, when you leave your body, you don't need that stuff anymore. But it, it's, right. it, but it is that whole idea of the right to have certain decisions that you make for yourself. Which, you know, for people listening to this, even if you're young, you really should let people know and put it in writing so that you can get what you want. You know, I think that's an important thing. 
especially as right. lawyers, and you and I as lawyers, we really should be telling people, you know, put in writing what you want, because your dad didn't have it in writing, did he? I don't even know that. Huh. But no, I, I mean, I don't think so. I think that by law, well, I don't know what the law is worth in, but, but by law, you have to have, you have to honor the person's health directives. Right. We can do that now, and, and that's true, Mari. Even people, young people that are listening now, we, you know, you don't think anything's going to happen to you, but if something does happen to you, what do you want? Yes. And, and you don't want some strange preacher or priest or some, you know, Something Some that didn't have anything, somebody... to, yeah, with your life, anything that was not in your life previously, exactly. Huh. So that's always good. So you do. went through some, after your dad died, and I know that was, that was a, a, you were a young woman in your 20s when he died. You were what, like 23 or something when he died? 23. Yeah, so that's, that's very hard to lose a dad. And then you went through some real tough, challenging times with people listening to this might remember it was all over the newspaper what you went through. And, I, and I'm and i hoping you can share this. I know it was hard for you and your family, and I think it had a huge impact on you and why you became a, 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 a prosecutor in domestic violence. Why don't, you, yes. why don't you tell the story of what happened to you with um, Dr. Gionis? Well, a, a mutual friend. Um, I had two kids from a previous marriage and a young single mom. And all of a sudden, this very, very aggressive type, charming personality um, guy I was introduced to as a doctor. And, you know, I fell for it and thought, well, he's going to take care of my kids and me. And, you know, just this very childish approach to it and um we got married and and soon after we got married i just could tell that this was not right and there were issues about control and i really had no idea i was so sheltered and my dad was such a good man and such a good-hearted man i didn't have any idea that people could be no like that. <laughs> I had no awareness of domestic violence, really, really. <sighs> and that, that it doesn't even really have to be hitting and pushing. So all of a sudden, you know, I couldn't talk to my friends, and that was bad, and, and certain restrictions here and restrictions there. And by the time, you know, I got pregnant, and, and by the time I was ready to have the baby, I knew that I had to leave this, I had to leave this, marriage or I was going to be I was going to be hurt and if I left the marriage I was going to be hurt and so I I pondered how am I going to get out of this um and you had two older kids too and I had two how old yeah, were had, they they were young still weren't they, they were only like three and five yeah and so when I married him so so I had to worry about them and and wondered if I if I leave just like you see, you know, in the TV movies, I think Farrah Fawcett did the first one that really got a lot of attention. Do you leave and really make them mad? Yeah. <laughs> or do you just stay and be, com- you know, compliant? Right. Well, I decided to leave, and then uh, he had me followed and followed and followed, and I knew that I was being followed. 
And then all of a sudden one day, bright, sunny day, I went to the gym and I worked out and I went with a friend of mine that, that um, we've been friends for years, family friends, and we pulled up in the car in broad daylight in his driveway where I had parked and two, um, two guys came up to us, they looked like cops, and they pulled out guns. And I thought they were his friends and on the police force, and they were just kidding. But they weren't kidding, and they said, get down on the ground. And they pistol-whipped my friend Roger mm. and tied him up. And then the, the one man had me at gunpoint with the gun to my head and said, don't you move or I'm going to shoot your head off. Oh, God. And tied me up and took my head and slammed it in the concrete because we were on the garage floor. Oh. Um, they cut his Achilles heel, which is kind of, well, they cut his Achilles heel, and then they really didn't say much except for when the main guy came over to me and bashed my head in and kind of broke my head open and was bleeding. At that point, he said, you know, you're messing with the wrong people. And I knew it was because we were, a custody trial was coming up in two weeks. Now, you had already filed for divorce, right? I had already filed for divorce. And, and then there was this custody battle over your little your little one, right? The, was she two right, then? Right, She was two, yeah. right. And I'd had, her, I'd had her for the first two years of her life. And um, the two weeks before the final trial, uh, I, I get this intimidating, you know, like, you better not do this. You're screwing around with the wrong people. Okay. So from that moment on, I knew that it was somebody after me, not after contents in the home or the car. It wasn't a robbery. I knew what it was. Right. And I and I told my friends on the police force, I know who's behind this. And basically, nobody believed you know that a doctor would do something like this. Right. I remember that in the paper. And and what about when you told your attorney? What did your attorney say? I have to say that, that my attorney was didn't really buy that, didn't really understand, and basically thought it was some random act or they were trying to get something or maybe uh, my friend Roger had been in some bad business deals. And I, I really couldn't get anybody to understand or believe me. Even, so, the, even the court didn't believe you, right? The court didn't believe me, and, and um, the attack, was it was all over the newspapers and all that because it was a hitman style attack, right? Like thugs, in, in real a, thugs. A, you know, in a, in a, in Orange County, doesn't really happen that often. So it had everything. <laughs> it had hitmen. It had child custody. It had all topics. So anyway, then um, in our custody trial, uh, the lawyers for him made it look like I was running around with bad people, maybe drug dealers or whatever, and they used it against me. Right, to get to take away custody, huh? Right. And so then the court awarded him primary custody because they didn't know what I was doing to to deserve that kind of retaliation. What, what, what's the mother doing? Why are people oh, God. doing hits on her? So anyway... And that was then just two, deliberately two later. That was deliberately planned by him. It was well. I think it was 
spontaneous. I think that he was so upset and mm. was so frantic. Yeah. That that uh, that a lot of a lot of people with control issues and domestic violence, they when they feel like they're losing control, they they do things that are stupid and desperate. Oh my God, you must have been terrified, Ayesa. Well, I showed up for court, <laughs> and um, what was interesting, two months later, there was just a freak a coincidence, and one officer from L.A. was talking to another officer in Orange County, and they tied up one of the guys that, that um, did it, had a limp, and they said, oh, well, we know somebody in Los Angeles who has a private investigator who has a guy with a limp working for him, and so they went and got a search warrant to the private investigator's records and saw that, that the act was had paid him Ooh. a huge lump sum payment <sighs> and there were phone calls going back and forth excessively in those early morning hours uh-huh. and tied it all together. That is so, so serendipity, you know, so much serendipity. So then what happened when you they called you and told you about this? What happened? So, yeah, the um, investigators called me and basically said, maybe you're right, because look what we found. And then uh, I told my lawyer, we we have to go back into court. You know, I've got to get my daughter back. And so we went back into court, and the judge was still disbelieving because he hadn't been convicted, and so gave us 50-50 custody until finally he was put in jail. And then the court reluctantly uh, gave me <laughs> primary physical custody. Oh, my God. Who was the judge? Is he still on the bench? It was Judge Owen. Oh. Isn't, is he retired now? I think he's, yeah, he's retired now, I believe. Um, but, you know. You never got any satisfaction or an apology or anything from him, huh? Uh, no, but I did. I mean, the satisfaction was that that. The truth came out, and eventually, uh, well, well, the one good thing was that court did appoint a child psychiatrist to do an evaluation of the family, and the child right. psychiatrist told the court exactly the profile of my ex-husband and that every day with him, the daughter was going to suffer, oh, and the good. court ignored that. So, you know, I don't know if there was a personal thing, but a lot of times... You know, our court, we have to be able to present the truth to the court. And, Mari, you know there are difficulties in doing that. Exactly, exactly. And there's prejudices there, too. And we're all, yeah, we're all human, and we have our prejudices, and, and he probably, I'm, I'm sure that during the trial, he had this painted picture of me that he just got a snippet of and uh, went with it. And figured, oh, the doctor, the doctor, the good guy, right? Right, right. Huh. So, and so that's kind of what led you to uh, to get into domestic violence, didn't it? Is that what kind of? Well, yes, you? yeah. That's when I started realizing I, I need help because I don't understand what has happened. I had one marriage and then another marriage, and I was very young with three children. And then I realized this isn't. I'm just not a victim here. Yeah, okay. I have to take some responsibility <laughs> for my situation. Right. And I started learning more about domestic violence and, and really understanding it and understanding that there's a way out 
And the good thing about it was, another serendipity, was that I figured, well, okay, once he gets out of jail, he's going to fight me forever. So I might as well become a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't want to pay these ridiculous prices, and I want to know what's, un- what's happening. So I'm just going to go to law school, and then I'm going to learn everything about this, which I did. And I was so fortunate to um, be hired as a prosecutor because the prosecution in my particular case where I was a victim, they were wonderful. And I created such a bond with the investigators and the prosecutors that prosecuted all of these people and got convictions that that was my dream. And isn't it ironic that it was almost a gift to you, the, the, the tragedy and the terror and all the horrible stuff that you went through, you yourself realized, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to do something about it. And look at all the good that you've done since then. I mean, you were able to help all these other women who were victimized by domestic violence. I think it's just the irony of life that we get these horrible things and, and the universe says, okay, what are you going to do with it? And I Isn't that said, amazing? Yeah. And you took it and said, I'm going to do something about it. God bless well, you. I- Here's the thing, if there's any victims of domestic violence listening, you're not aware of it at the time. You're just trying to go day by day and not be hurt. And so it just happened. It wasn't... The minute I said, well, I, you know, I've just got to do a little thing about it. It wasn't that I planned to become a lawyer and I planned to fight this. But little by little, little, by little I think that's how it works out if you turn away from it. And you just take one step at a time and say, okay, I can make, I can get through this. I can make a change. Right. And, and why did you change from being a uh, prosecutor for domestic violence? And how did you evolve into the family law arena into private practice? Well, I think that the, um, being a prosecutor in domestic violence was wonderful and a great job. Um, the family law practice actually gets all of the issues. It's not just as one-sided. And I worked with a lot of victims being a prosecutor, and a lot of times those victims needed, they needed help themselves. And they needed help, and there was really nothing I could do as a prosecutor except to prosecute the perpetrator. Right, And so right. many times the victims would go back and I'd see them again. And and so I think being a family law attorney, you, you have the you have the opportunity to counsel and to to help um, victims of domestic violence in, in, in maybe more of a broad sense. And make sure that they get that custody that you lost temporarily and make sure that they get a fair trial. You right. Know? And, and the lawyers really, in, in these dissolution cases, really can try to control their client's behavior so it doesn't impact the kids so much. Right. It, it was hard on your kids, I'm sure. You know, thank God they're, they, I saw pictures of them and they're doing beautifully and that's because they have a good mom. But it's, it is very tragic for the kids having to go through any kind of domestic violence like that. So, right. I mean, that's why when, my, when they were so young, I made the decision I'm not going to subject them to this. So I, luckily I got them out early, but they still have memories of certain things, and it was a very short one-year marriage. Yeah, the trauma so, of it. 
Well, you were smart to get out. That's another thing for people who are listening. Don't stay. Ayesha is telling you that get out as quickly as possible to reduce that kind of pain for your kids and for yourself. Right. And look how I was rewarded just for leaving. All these wonderful things happened to me. And uh, if I would have stayed and believed, you know, that I was horrible and terrible, then... Um, well, you could have been they... dead with his kind of friends. I mean, you know. Yeah, I know. I mean, you never know what could happen. Look at like Nicole Simpson, right? I mean, you never know what could happen. Right. You so, never know. So, Ayissa, I wanted to ask you. In I know you do celebrity divorces, and you wrote an article about that. And, and Lloyd says we only have about five minutes, so maybe we could talk about what are the privacy issues with celebrities. What kind of? Well, unfortunately, unfortunately. Once you're a public figure, you really give up a lot of your um, rights to privacy, wouldn't you say, Maury? Yeah. That's why I try to tell people that the smartest thing to do is to get into mediation where you can keep it confidential <laughs> and try and have private settlement agreements that you don't put into the court because anything that you file with the court becomes a public record, right? Right. It used to be that we, we could seal seal the files, but the Supreme Court has ruled that that individuals' right to privacy is not as important as the public and the, the policy of keeping our judicial system one that can be scrutinized and that can be looked at by the public. So private mediations, private judging, all those things are fabulous if you don't want everything to be public record and, and those that don't want their kids to see what what the parents are saying about each other either right to destroy that their own self-concept and uh, right you have but you have to be able to be willing to uh to keep it private in other words if one person wants to destroy the other person publicly because they want to destroy them then you know it's not going to work so and that's the problem that's the big I've had a couple of celebrity cases, and, and one of the motivating factors and some, something that, that the non-celebrity spouse, they can really get even if they want to by saying things to the press and trying to ruin the, uh, the celebrity. Yeah. I mean, think, look, look at the Paul McCartney case. Look at that. I mean, how right. she, what she did to him. And it kind of backfired on her, though, because everybody ended up looking at her as she was the fool and she was the right. one, you know. So sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But any way you look at it, it is just humiliating and it is totally a lack of privacy. So um, obviously w what you it's want. terrible. And, Mar, you're doing so many good things to promote privacy and the ability for a person to keep their dignity through a really tough time. Yes. You're a mediator, you understand it, and you're, you're promoting this. And, and I think that when people get in those situations, I hope they remember you because there are, you're such an advocate for that, and it's so important to, be, to have your name be dragged through uh, the newspapers, and even in your own community. And you went through that. I mean, my God. And how, how the p 
papers first made it look like, you know, you were the, maybe hanging with bad people. And then, right. and then, you know, to have to go through that. And you were really innocent and young and just a, a mom with three little kids. It is, um, I just admire all you've done to overcome that, Ayesa, really. Oh, Mari. It really is. I mean, it's really all the good that you're doing now for other women going through this. I think it's really important. Lloyd says we only have another minute. I just want to ask you a quick question going back to your book, and I thought about this. If you would have had your wish as a little girl growing up as a cel- in a celebrity home, what would you have changed to make your life less painful than it was when you were little? Do you, can you have any idea? Well, you know, that's a really good question because my biggest wish would have been that my dad was a normal person with a normal job that would come home every night to dinner and he wouldn't have to go far away and and then I wouldn't have to look at the stars at night and say, okay, now we're looking at the same stars because he's on some other part of the globe. Mm. And, you know, that's what I craved and really longed for growing up. Well, I know Um, you have been there for your kids and have been a loving mom and have done everything you could. So, you know, I'm sure your dad's looking down and saying, hey, Ayesa, you made it up. But Lloyd says it's time to go. I just want to thank Ayesa Wayne, who is the author of John Wayne, My Father, a book that has been out for a while, but you just want to read it. It's, It's just touching and humorous and makes you cry and laugh at the same time. And also, you should look, if you are interested in uh, finding out more about family law, you can go to waynelawgroup.com. That's uh, Ayesa's law firm, and she's great. And we love you, Ayesa. Thank you so much. thank you. And And Laura, you inspire me every day. Well, you inspire me, too. And we're going to see you this weekend at the John Wayne Foundation if you want to contribute to a very good cause. What is the website for that? Is it just John Wayne Foundation? or what it's is it? J-W-C-I for John Wayne Cancer Institute. It's okay. at St. John's Hospital in Los Angeles, and they're doing wonderful things for treatment of cancer. Okay, so we'll, we'll tell our listeners to go to that, too. So we will talk to you again soon and see you soon. Thank you, Ayesa. Thank you, Mari. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy, and we've just been speaking with Ayesa Wayne, daughter of John Wayne. And we hope that you'll join us next week and visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. It airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. I'm also the host of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips, and I'm so privileged to bring back to us for this segment Lieutenant Mike Betzler. He has been with the Orange County Sheriff Department for 26 years, and he is Chief of Police Services in San Juan Capistrano, right near 
where our office is in Laguna Niguel. So we're so thrilled to have you back. How are you doing? Uh, thanks, Maria. It's uh, good to be back. So last week we talked about some very interesting scams, but this week we're going to talk about traffic safety because that is such a huge issue. We An accident can ruin a person's life or actually take a person's life, and we've all been worried about accidents. So what's going on with traffic safety? Well, thanks, Maria. Our roadways in South Orange County are very safe, but at the same time, we're constantly working to make them even safer. Some of the things I would encourage your listeners to do is uh, check out some of the new laws that are coming into effect. I think one of the most important ones identifies a safety trend that we've seen that distracted drivers are becoming almost as dangerous as drivers under the influence. And uh, a new law that's a uh, 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 signed to go into effect July 1st of 2008 is one that restricts drivers from utilizing handheld cell phones and communication devices while they drive. Drivers over the age of 18 must use a wireless uh, telephone and drivers under the age of 18 are not even allowed to talk with a hands-free device. I see people with cell phones talking and it drives me <laughs> crazy. They're trying to park and they got their hand on one cell phone and the other hand on the wheel trying to turn. It's It's insane. Now, also, tell us about the red light cameras. That's something that I think is a little scary for us, thinking about Big Brothers watching us at red stop at the red lights. Uh, I know that red light cameras have been somewhat controversial, but it's not really new technology. Traffic studies have shown that traffic accidents are reduced by about 40% at intersections utilizing the red light camera technology. You know, and those type of uh, broadside impacts that we might see at an intersection are ones that typically uh, uh, where drivers and passengers aren't protected by engineered crumple zone seat belts and airbags like rear end or head-on collisions. I think that uh, although no, red light cameras are not necessarily the magic bullet, I think in a comprehensive traffic safety program, they do have a, a place in our um, traffic safety efforts. You know, I think that's a great idea, to, to be honest with you, because I've seen people go through red lights, and when I hesitate and they go through the red light, I think, oh, my God, I just saved my life or my family's life. So you're right. I think it makes some good sense, too. So thank you so much again for joining us, and we will talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me, Mark. Okay, bye-bye.